I love the remote nature of the southwestern desert landscapes I see whizzing by on road trips. I love the feeling that if I got out of my car and started walking, I could quickly find myself in places where it's hard to see any signs of human activity. The sense that maybe you're the first person to stand in that exact spot or the first person in a long time. This is why coming around a corner in a canyon somewhere in the desert and suddenly seeing hundreds or thousands year old imagery etched or painted onto the remote desert walls can be so jarring and so profoundly moving. Here, in the very place that seems so devoid of human activity, we find not just archaeological evidence of human activity, but expressions of human culture. Welcome to Writing Westward. I'm your host, Brennan Retzik. This month, we talk with author, self-proclaimed dirtbag, and desert wanderer extraordinaire, Craig Childs, about his recent book, Tracing Time, Seasons of Rock Art on the Colorado Plateau. Thanks for listening. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about writing westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West. Historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation. With me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else. All tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship, and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects, and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest, and why we're talking to them. Craig Childs is a multiple award-winning author with more than a dozen books and countless shorter pieces on outdoor adventures, wilderness, and science to his name. His recent book that we talk about today, Tracing Time, Seasons of Rock Art on the Colorado Plateau, was published in 2022 by Tory House Press. In late 2022, Tory House also published a new edition of his 1995 Stone Desert, A Naturalist's Exploration of Canyonlands National Park accompanied with a facsimile of the original journal Childs built that book from. You can find more information on his other books and writings at his website, houseofrain.com. In Tracing Time, Childs walks us through his years of experiences exploring southwestern deserts around the Four Corners region, and the various kinds of rock art imagery he has encountered, and what observing them across multiple years has meant to him as well as to others. These musings are paired with conversations he has had with regional indigenous peoples, archaeologists, and others. The resulting text is beautifully written and moving. It will inspire readers not only to go out for some exploring of their own, but to take their time doing it. Sometimes the personal meaning we find in petroglyphs and pictographs is only found when we slow down, sit down, and spend time to build relationships with the surrounding landscapes. 
understand the topographical, ecological, and historical contexts that brought previous generations of people to the same place, where they lived and left their mark, literally, on desert walls, but where we generally only visit as sport or leisure. Child says his sport is seeing. Tracing time will definitely help you to train your eyes to see deserts differently, rock art and all. Craig Childs, welcome to Riding Westward. Thank you for having me here. I thought we could start uh, by learning a little bit about your background. Um, a good portion of your career as a writer um, has been built off of, you know, your exploring desert landscapes in the Southwest um, as what you call a dirt bag. Uh, so for those uninitiated, could you explain to us what that means? Uh, what is the dirt bag life? And then maybe what were some of your first experiences wandering around the Southwest that that led you down this path? Yeah, the dirt bag life, um, I, which uh, you, you can find vestiges of it if you walk into my house right now. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm packing to leave for the next seven days in the backcountry, so the sleeping bags and and equipment and stuff is just strewn all over the place which is i the the remnant of of uh, of a life that was once entirely dirtbag which i my my definition is is spending more nights on the ground than you do under a roof which uh i used to be out for probably 9 9 10 months of the year uh my 20s and 30s uh so you know sometimes out guiding um but mostly out just wandering and for a long period i didn't have a, an address while well, i had a p.o box in your a colorado uh so that that lifestyle is just more the the itinerant um shower seeking or shower avoiding uh <laughs> lifestyle <laughs> I know and, there's lots of um, like rock climbers who, you know, they just live out of their van climbing all the time or certain yeah. people in, in surf cultures do the same thing where they sacrifice most creature comforts in the name of, you know, being out doing what they love doing. Yeah. And I think my, my sport was, uh, was observation and recording, um, you know, not, um, not so much the the athletic sport but more more just the uh the the sacrificing the creature comforts to be in it and and observing it and and take note and and so i i still do that but i have kids in a world a different world that i that i used to but it's still a you know a world that's very fo focused on the door opening and and going out and in, into into the bigger world so you grew up in the Phoenix Valley, I gather. Well, I, I grew up uh, some there and some on the Front Range of Colorado, um, south of Denver. Mm -hmm. So kind of back and forth, uh, and then some in in uh, eastern Arizona on the Arizona New Mexico border. So what in those early years um, made you fall in love with with these desert landscapes and being outside? Yeah. I, I don't know how you don't, <laughs> I guess, I uh, I mean, you, it helps that, that both my parents, I grew up with a, a single mom, uh, who is, is still, uh, she's in her 
late seventies. And, uh, she just turned me down today for a nine day river trip because her shoulder's bothering her, but I'll, I'll accept that. I think she, late seventies, she has a good excuse. Yeah. But she does that. Um, uh, she's done that her whole life. She's, she's a, an adventurer, a, a traveler, um, and very, very nature oriented. She is not happy unless she's outside. She doesn't like to be inside really. So I, I got that from her and my dad was a, a fly fisherman in Arizona. Uh, we'd go up fishing on the muggy on rim in the little creeks and, uh, and spent a lot of time walking around. He was more the philosophical type, uh, you know, thinking about the universe and how it all works. And my mom was just pure, pure being in the, in the natural world. She just, she just loves to smile in the sunshine. That's her thing. I think I can sense both of those kind of inheritances in your writing though. Yeah. You seem to be a, a good combination of those attributes <laughs> of your parents. Thanks. They, they both were very driven to, to the natural world and for, for different reasons. So it seems that at some point though, you know, you, you go to college, you are entering adulthood. Was it an intentional decision to say, Hey, I'm going to be outside as much as possible. Um, or is it just something that evolved and happened organically? Yeah. I, you know, I don't know how intentional it was. I just kind of went there. Um, I started guiding, um, river trips when I was 19 and, and worked, worked summers, um, guiding, um, kind of the desert rivers, Gunnison, Yampa, Colorado green. And, uh, but I didn't really know I was, I was a, journalism major and a women's studies minor at CU in Boulder. And, and I, I thought, you know, I'll get a job somewhere in the world. And, you know, I, I didn't have an aversion to the corporate world necessarily. I didn't know what it was and I thought I'll probably end up there. And then I just didn't. Uh, and so it, it wasn't really intentional. I kept leaning toward where I wanted to go and, and, uh, but then once I started leaning heavily into it, I realized that that's where my life was. And and any decision from here on out needs to be directed toward that. It seems like from most of the things I've read, you really prefer being out in areas that are, you know, as remote as possible with less people, less crowds than say, you know, arches or something. Um, yeah. Is, is that a correct generalization? I, I enjoy that. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> um, what do you get differently out of like, say a, a, the solitude of that kind of wilderness experience versus in a place that might be visually stunning, but have more people or human presence around? I, I like them both a lot. I, I spend, I spend a fair amount of time in human landscapes intentionally. I, uh, my kids and I have, for the last 10 years have been doing some major urban treks backpacking through uh we backpacked for eight days across brooklyn and manhattan and uh uh just just recently uh, the last trip was was salt lake city uh my high schooler and i took took a train up and and just you know we just hit a city and walk we walk for miles and miles just gawking <laughs> so the 
I'm very interested in the human landscape and I'm interested in places like arches. I, you know, where it's packed, but I can kind of both see through all the crowds and see the landscape as it is, but also look at the crowds and go, look at this, look at all these people who have come so far to, to witness this. And, and so it, it's the human element is is something i'm very interested in but at the same time like you like you said i'm drawn to the places that are empty yeah i that's that's where my my heart is 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 way way out there where i can be as far away from people as possible where i can see the land just kind of as as is as a geographic feature as a you know non-human feature because we do spend so much time in the human landscape that's a hard tension, isn't it? Because, you know, when I visit some of these parks with my kids, and you know, I, 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 especially if they're whining about a hike that I'm taking them on, you know, I try to say, you know, like, look at all these people who, I mean, literally coming from all over the world yeah. to see these places that are just a couple hours from our house and you know, how lucky we are. And, and I am really excited that, that there are people out there um, experiencing it because it's, you know, these experiencing it is profound for me and important for me. But at the same time, uh, it it does get under my skin sometimes, and I feel like it's um, it's robbing me of a certain kind of experience that I wanted to have out there with a little bit more of the solitude. But that, but I don't want it. But I want it to be accessible to everyone. Maybe I yeah. just need to time my my trips differently. Where there's <laughs> yeah, uh, I I try to get both uh, because being in being with a lot of people in in a natural landscape is I'm not behaving the way that I would want to. I'm, I'm being very, very cautious. You know, I, when I'm alone out there, I'm just, I'm just running around looking at everything and, and, you know, very, very hungry and excited. And when I'm with a bunch of people, it's, it, they're part of my experience. So I'm, I'm going, you know, don't, don't wreck it for them. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you're consci- um, more conscientious than most, then maybe. <laughs> but um, it, is, it is fascinating to be with them and see, you know, watch their reactions and listen to their conversations. I, I once, um, this this may be a little creepy, but at the Grand Canyon, I climbed over a point um, over the railing and hid down below, just like five feet below on a little ledge where nobody could see me. And I just spent all day listening to all the conversations. Um, and I couldn't see anybody, but I could hear them all and I could hear their reactions. And, and it was, it was really striking to hear, you know, the people come up and lose their ability to speak, you know, just, I could just hear them faltering, you know, just, just being gripped by what they were seeing. And, and I, and I also, this was before kids, before I had kids and I would hear families coming and just listen to the chaos and go, Oh my God, you people, you're crazy. Mm-hmm. And now I realize what that was about because, you know, getting to that point was the end of an incredible journey <laughs> with kids um, who are going berserk and the parents who are going berserk. And so I, now I understand a little bit more, but I would hear them and go, come on, you people look out here, look at what you're looking at. Stop stop barking at each other and now i know that oh that barking at each other is part of the landscape it's it's their experience there and you know that'll that horizon will be burned into them yeah lately i've been struggling with uh 
with kind of the Instagram culture, as it were, you know, when I visit these places and the, the people, you know, if there are a lot of people around that so many of them are um, just trying to, I, mean, I, I sat once, you know, and I saw for like 20, 30 minutes, saw this, uh, this couple just trying to take this one shot of, uh, of the lady, you know, with whatnot in the background. They just were there for like 30 minutes yeah. and um, they're experiencing it in their own way, I guess. Um, but I want to be, I want to say like, look, just look around though. You know, like, uh, it's not just about getting that one shot, like just sit here and and take it in, you know? Yeah, we've, we're definitely at a odd moment culturally because I don't, maybe we had some element of this, but it is sure concentrated the, uh, the, the getting the shot and I'm part of it. I, I look for pictures and I have to remind myself, okay, look outside of your phone here. Uh, look up. There's there's a much bigger world going on. But we are kind of being reduced to what fits inside of that frame and where that frame can go, where we can post it and what it can say, which is all valuable, but it's a byproduct of of something much, much larger. Yeah. But we are trying to convey something by the – I mean, this is a good segue into – the topic of your book tracing time but you know we we re, we take these pictures and we post them in certain places because we're trying to say something about ourselves we're trying to interact with um with others kind of through these images um which is maybe you know part of what's going on with petroglyphs and pictographs yeah um, yeah what were your first experiences uh seeing rock art how, how do you remember how you reacted to it? I I was pretty young. Um, I don't know what age, but but I I remember being struck by it. Of course, what a mystery! I mean, I'm I'm still like I guess I look down on sidewalks for pieces of paper that people have written on, and I get excited when I find them. You know, just finding somebody's grocery list I find to be thrilling. Because it's, it's, you know, somebody leaving a, um, a mark of themselves, some, some personal thing that, and I, I don't know why that touches me so much. And then of course you magnify that by thousands of years and it just becomes more powerful. And, and so I've always been drawn to maybe secret messages or, or, you know things left behind that tell of tell of lives, and so when I when I was a kid and seeing rock art, it was really magical because it was a time. It I guess it increased my knowledge of time that the the sphere I lived in became much larger when I saw rock art because you know we live inside of our heads, we live inside of hours and days and months and. And I, I just remember being transported out of that, out of that kind of limiting sense of time into a much bigger time, and and you know, thinking, oh wow, people, we have been here, whoever we are, humans, people with hands, have been doing things for this long. Wow, my life is is actually, it it gives me context. My life is sitting within a much larger world than I thought. There's lots of archaeological, you know types of remnants that do, can do this right you know you see these pit houses or these amazing cliff dwellings and they give us this context of chronology and that people have been here living uh, for a lot longer than us um but uh rock art 
it's not just um, a pile of old bricks or you know an old granary where you can tell that at a utilitarian or a, a purely utilitarian thing, um, and that's kind of the evidence we have of of these past peoples. But the rock art is evidence of uh, of human expression and culture, and that uh, I mean, you cite um, oh gosh, I don't remember which archaeologist it was. I think the one at NAU, Kelly, maybe. Oh, um, Kelly has spoken. Yeah, where she says, you know, something along the lines of, we don't know maybe what all of this means, but we do know that it was meaningful. Like, it meant something to the people who spent the time and effort to, 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 yeah. to create these, you know, images and panels. Um, yeah, I think, it, and it's that meaningfulness that that really I come away with that, that's all I wanted to do with this book, Tracing Time, is to go, this actually has meaning. And what the meaning is, I don't know, you could guess, you could piece together and come up with some some ideas and and maybe be close to the truth, but you, you'd never know. Um, but what is the most important thing is is to know that that there were deep meanings to to these images, that that they were parts of stories or parts of rituals or, you know, telling telling histories and and really that meaning is all i wanted to come away with and say we don't necessarily know what these are but we know they meant something you write that you want this book to be you said um not a guidebook of places to visit and actually um i think that was, that was early in the book you kind of give this qualifying statement and as I read through, I, I was actually struck by how often devoid, like no, if someone was to try to take your book and use it to go find rock art, yeah. there's some general regions that you identify, but it seems that you're actually very careful to not make this a guidebook of sites. Um, uh, instead, you say you want it to be a guidebook of, a guidebook to context, meaning, and ways of seeing. Yeah. Can you unpack that for us? What? Yeah, I on on the one level of of not making it a a geographic guidebook. You know, some of these are really sensitive places. Um, uh, some of them were shown to me, so I don't really feel like I have the the place to be saying, "Hey, everybody, come look at this." Um, and and I. I, I know that not everybody has the time that I've got, that I'm really fortunate to be able to take long chunks and look for rock art. And and not everybody can do that. People need to know where it is to go see it because they've got a, an afternoon or a weekend. Um, but I figure there are enough resources out there that, that people can follow them and find what they want. Uh, but really, I, I was trying to say this is a way of seeing like you said this is this is how to how to take meaning from this so that when you see rock art it doesn't necessarily ma matter which panel you're you're witnessing you know if it's in utah or colorado or wherever it's more that this applies to all of the rock art that here here's a way of looking at it and understanding the depth and understanding the possibilities because that's more interesting to me than where it is um or being told where it is. And and I, I struggle with this because 
I don't want to make this my secret museum that nobody else gets to visit. Um, because rock art, I, I believe, is is meant to be seen. And and so I am, you know, when I see other people witnessing it, I'm I'm excited by that because I think, oh, you're, you know, the makers of this rock art didn't foresee you in particular seeing this, but it was made for human eyes. And and here you are looking at it. Uh, so so I'm 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 torn because I I don't want to be giving away places. I don't want to. Um, you know, so much is sensitive and so much is being given away these days that I, I want to say it's not about this ind individual place. It's about this experience. And you'll go out and see a whole different set of rock art figures than I saw. And and you'll have a different experience with it. But here is a primer. If you read this, it will help you so that when you're looking at it, you'll be able to see a bit deeper into it. Yeah, some good framing. Um, yeah. Uh, a, a set of kind of perspectives or questions to be asking and thinking about, I think, are are useful. The, your first book that I came across was um, The Secret Knowledge of Water. Mm -hmm. uh, and it really struck me it was, um, how, in that book, how you were reading the desert landscape kind of through the lens of water, where it was, where it wasn't, where it had left its mark. Yeah. Um, and you seem to be doing something similar here of learning how to read a landscape or even then a specific place, you know, where there's some rock art uh, in the context of, uh, of, of, of broader things. Um, so how do you hope that readers then, if they go out on a hike tomorrow, um, how are you hoping that they'll read the landscape a little differently or get more context as they then you know stand and behold these these panels or galleries yeah well every i think every book that i write is a is a certain lens um where i'm looking through some element if it's animal or or elemental water fire whatever um that that these are all ways of seeing a place and these are all parts of the place so every book is is a different part and generally looking at the same landscape generally the southwest and and rock art is one that that you know it's taken me a while to write about it because for me water was much easier <laughs> because you know one it's not human so so there's uh it it's just it's raw elemental whereas rock art is 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 more complicated um in in a cultural sense you know what was this person trying to say whereas i look at water and i, I go that's what water is saying right there uh, and and so i want readers to look through this this lens of rock art and and see the land and and see it as um as kind of the the landscape as a book and people have written the book of the of the land and you're reading it and it may be in a language that you don't understand, but at least you know that, oh, this is telling the story of this place and the the people who who are here, who were here. Um, and so I just I for readers, I guess I, I want another another uh, lens and a and a deep cultural lens so that when they when they see the rock art that they're also seeing that this is 
these are the the signs of the first people. You know, these are the first deeds on the land. These are older than than our than our paper deeds that we have now. And and so to 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 see it as as this this connection through time that and a very human connection to a place so that so you're not necessarily seeing this landscape as as unoccupied um as empty and open for whatever comes next it's it's actually a very occupied landscape and has been for a long time and this is this is evidence of it i mean these desert landscapes it is so easy to think of them as unoccupied unused because uh, you don't have to get far off of a road or a trail to feel very isolated, very alone. And I said uh, in the intro to the episode that one of the things that I always find so magical about wandering around in the, some of the deserts around here is that you get this sense that, uh, am I the first person to ever stand in this exact spot? Or yeah. maybe the first person in hundreds of years? And And you can get that feeling all over the place, which is why... When you stumble upon, you know, an old tin can or uh, or rock art, it, it's a little jarring. Oh, uh, yeah, this is not a a landscape fully devoid of humans. Yeah, and for me, that's a really rich sensation. the The rusted can is, you know, it it's one layer of it. I find a rusted can, and I immediately go, "Oh, they were here." The, the people of of the 1920s <laughs> or or whoever and and i though i like that feeling of i'm the first person to ever be here it's a fanciful notion and it's not as rich as as not many people have been here recently but over time many many people have moved through this place and then it starts to it starts to open up into a different level i think the first level that we get in the wilderness is me it's all about me which is you know great we are us <laughs> let it be about us uh, but then let go of that and go to the next level and say oh it's about me being in a place where there were other me's before other humans here and what were they doing who brought this this can here and then go back farther. Who, who built this granary? Who left this rock art? Um, and you get away from that feeling of I was the I am the first person here, and get into this continuum where you go, oh, I'm the next person here, which is to me a much stronger sensation of of belonging. Of uh, there's a loneliness that comes from from saying I'm the first one here. It's a magical feeling but it is you're you're all alone and and seeing this stream of rock art going back thousands of years you realize i'm the next layer of this this complex story and where do i fit in how do i how do i pass this on you know where where i will someday be some ghost out here some memory you know how do how do i fit into this i mean your, the title and subtitle of your book hint at this in a lot of ways, right? Tracing time, seasons of rock art. Uh, it's yeah. for, you, for you, this seems to be about stitching yourself kind of into this continuum of people out there on the landscape doing all kinds of different things, but, but you're one of many. There's a lineage. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's the continuity that that matters then, and not so much the isolation, and and you know, being in a place where the seasons haven't changed that much. Um, I mean, at their core, it's the same shadow that's been landing in the same place for for tens of thousands of years, and and to be there and say, okay, the the person who made this rock art that's fifteen hundred years old was watching the same sun traveling in the same direction, was watching winter come on in the same way, watching spring come on in the summer. And, and, and so I'm, I'm part of all that. You know, when, when you're looking at rock art, you're, you belong in this much larger venue of, of time. Yeah. There's some ways in which, you know, like right now we're kind of in a mega drought and, you know, we know from archaeological evidence that some of these places um, had wetter and drier times than we're experiencing now. So, so those contexts may be different from the person who, or the group who made the rock art in you. But the placement of the sun, the shadows, uh, those things haven't changed that much, you know, yeah. uh, in the last, you know, 5,000 years. Um, so yeah, and that's, that's amazing to to be watching the same shadow and that's and often rock art or maybe not often, but there are plenty of rock art sites that, that are built or designed with, with the sun in mind and seasons in mind. So that you're, you're seeing exactly what they saw. Yeah. Marking solstices and equinoxes, mm -hmm. planting seasons. And so yeah. Um, you write about some of these places, um, thinking you know continuing on this theme of the passage of time of certain sites that you have gone to and revisited not just you know randomly multiple times over the course of your life but it seems that you visited them uh, with some intentionality of wanting to go during the different seasons of the year during different times of day or going to a site and staying there for the entirety of the day yeah um, what do you how does your relationship with these uh these sites change as you kind of take in your, your experiences from these multiple seasons or times of day? Yeah, it changes dramatically. Um, it's amazing how much more you see. There, there are panels out by where I live in Southwest Colorado that I've visited a lot and you know, spent, I, I don't know how many hours, um, days and days and days. Uh, just just watching and it and it is interesting to see the how the light changes during the day what time of day is best for viewing you know some figures really pop out in midday light and some some figures don't stand out until the end of the day and some of these panels I thought I knew really well and then you know little figures come out that are so clear you know, there's a hummingbird etched or pecked into a, a rock face then i hadn't seen the hummingbird and i i had studied this rock face in and out i had drawn it i had photographed it and and then at about four o'clock on a december evening 4 p.m um this hummingbird just stood out brightly and and you realize how much more is there and you realize how detailed some of these figures are that, that maybe your eye sweeps over them if you have 10 minutes 
but then give it an hour and you'll see twice as much give it two days and and you're just startled at how much more comes out of the rock do you feel that this um i don't know if gives insight is the right word but thinking about you know we so you have some of these sites where we can tell that you know on a single panel there's rock art uh, from multiple generations sometimes stretching over thousands of years so you're also not the first person to show up at the site and stand there and look and say well, well look at this like a thousand years ago there were people doing that looking at rock art that had been there a thousand years before um how do you think about kind of the questions that that you sit there and ask how, how you see this landscape uh, versus how they may have, say, like the second group who came to a site and then left some art of their own? Yeah, that's a really good question, because I think it it was it would have been powerful in a different way to be here a thousand years ago and being seeing something that was left three thousand years ago. You know, that's a, a long distance in time. And sometimes we look at the rock art and we think, oh, this is all together at the same time, you know, give or take a thousand years. <laughs> give or take a thousand years, right? <laughs> yeah, and look at our lives and go, oh, give or take a thousand years. <laughs> you know, how old are you, give or take a thousand years? <laughs> it, it's the the time scales are so much larger. And, and I imagined, um, you know, people of, of Pueblo ancestry looking at basket maker rock art that came a thousand years before them and and some people recognizing the connections and saying, oh yeah, I that is my family lineage. Uh, but I imagine there are plenty of other people who are going, huh, I don't know these people. In fact, I'm not sure where I am. I'm not sure whose land I'm on. And and in some ways, I imagine it was eerie. As you write, you write about some Navajos in recent times, uh, you know, in recent memory, who, um, you know, th there were certain sites that they sought to destroy or deface because they they felt that there was, you know, evil emanating from there. Um, so it's not which, always a positive yeah. relationship. Yeah, there, there, uh, there could be. It could, you know, two different cultures living in the same place, even over a different time period. I think it matters. I think there's still there, there are remnants. There are, you know, this is somebody else's land, and and I imagine, you know, Navajo people, uh, especially the the ones that I brought up were in the book we're we're looking at certain sites and and going you know what these are not our ancestors these are somebody else's ancestors and and this is powerful stuff that's on these walls we we need a relationship with it of some sort and i think the same thing about uh being anglo looking at these and go oh wow these are this is somebody else's ancestry this is somebody else's landscape and i'm standing here in front of it there are definitely times that i feel awkward i think there should be a bit of um eeriness to rock art that that you should look at it and go huh i'm am i supposed to be here a little discomfort yeah yeah and i and i actually think that that's part of the experience that, that there should be the discomfort of of asking uh, what right do i have to be looking at this you know i asked that through 
throughout writing this book? What what right do I have to be even writing about this this stuff? Um, because it's it's not mine, but it's in the landscape where I live, and it's one of the elements here. And you know, I write about water. I write about cities. I write about rivers, uh, animals, ancestry. It's all part of this place. But there is there is certainly a discomfort of just you know. Sometimes I look up at rock art and I go, "Hi, yeah, I know you weren't expecting me, us, but here we are, um, looking at each other across this distance of time, which really isn't that much, give or take a thousand years." Yeah, I've read about people having really profound experiences with sites that have you know hand, handprints, which is one of the chapters you talk about. But you know, of course, not touching it but you know it, it's yeah. something to that there's a handprint that's you know three thousand years old on the wall and you can or it's a child's handprint and yeah you know, your kid there with you and you're like you know we're not in some ways we're not that different you know um those hands are the same they're identical yeah, yeah. smaller larger but still you look at those hands and go oh i'm i'm you you're me we're we're very we're very close together but of course, maybe some of our discomfort comes from the fact that the context in which we're visiting these sites, you know, as leisure, uh, as adventure, is likely um, profoundly different than the context in which, you know, someone a thousand years ago happened upon one of these sites from, you know, a thousand years previous. You know, they were living on this landscape and had a relationship with it in ways that very few of us do. Yeah, I think they were, their questions were probably very pointed. Um, who were you? How did you do this? Uh, do we have to worry about you? Uh, um, yeah, I think, I think we're coming more as, we're as, as visitors, um, as if we're walking through a, an art museum. And it occurs to me that many of these sites, although they were meant to be seen, they're visual sites, they may not be meant to be seen by many people. Um, mm -hmm. I went to to look at a, a bunch of Kiva murals that had been taken out of uh, Kivas and and were stored at the Peabody Museum down in the in the the the, the basement in at Harvard and and uh, I talked to a Hopi archaeologist before going and I said, "Hey, is it okay for me to be doing this? I'm going to be looking at Kiva art." which is you know, inherently private. And he said, well, you don't know what you're seeing, so it's fine. Um, but if it was a certain clan, that would be bad. If it was not the clan that belonged to that Kiva who knew what they were looking at, then that would be bad. So, so there are a lot of layers of, of, you know, those handprints on the walls. Were they meant to be seen by anybody or were they part of a very private uh, ceremony? And and I wonder when I look at rock art, I go, well, this is very visual. This is meant for my eyes. And I think, well, maybe this wasn't, if you walked by a thousand years ago, you would have looked at the ground. You would have not looked up and, and gone, oh, who are these? Oh, look at the hands. They're just like mine. They would have, they might have said, don't make eye contact. Hmm. Just keep moving. At some of these sites, it's, I think... I'd be more likely to get that sense when you happen upon a site that does not have a clear 
explanation for why it is where it is. You know, sometimes, you know, where there are springs, where there is overhanging shelters, you know, for shade, uh, the confluences of, of rivers or smaller drainages. Like sometimes the topography dictates like, oh, like this is clearly, this is the site that they were living at or where there was a high occupancy or it was a, a way marker for certain things. But I've happened upon stuff in the most random of places where I look around and I can't figure out why here. Yeah. Um, and, and that's when I ask, well, is it here because it was not meant to be seen? It was intentionally chosen in a remote place? Or, I mean, it could have just been uh, that someone just wanted to make some art. I mean, they, they could have had, for whatever random capricious reasons, decided, I'm, I'm going to do some doodling today on the walls. Like, they could have done that as well. We can't rob them of that. Right, of right. Yeah. It's possible. And... And, and that's the first question I ask at a site is why, why here? And I think often the, the information that you would need is gone. Uh, you know, that uh, I was out with uh, uh, someone from Hopi in Arizona looking at, at sites, um, looking at one site that had thousands of petroglyphs. And, and I was just going, okay, why in this spot? And he said, well, because Zuni and Hopi have a pilgrimage to the Grand Canyon and we come through here and we have for thousands of years and there's a little spring nearby. And so this is where everybody leaves their, their uh, clan sign. And, and without knowing about the pilgrimage, I would have just gone, this is completely random <laughs> that, that of all this desert, this there, there are thousands of petroglyphs right in this spot. But somebody had the knowledge to say, oh, this is actually on a route. So this is a very busy place if you look at it over over time. Um, but then, like you said, the the small, small places that you see, you know, what happened there? Is that a birthplace? Is that a you know, I, I tend to think that something happened there. I um that there's a reason, uh, but we're, we're human also. There, there are plenty of, we can come up with reasons for doing anything. Um, but you just, you sent me pictures yesterday from when you went up to, to rock art around where you live. And, you know, I was looking at the pictures and going, okay, that's up on, must be up on the, the terraces of, of Lake Bonneville. And, and they would, they would have known, they would have looked at terraces and gone, huh? There used to be a lot of water here, mm -hmm. and and uh, you know I just I and I didn't know about the rock art that that you showed me in the pictures, and it's it's just amazing to think about that. Is oh right there, of course that makes sense. Looking down over the the big basins and and uh, but then why? <laughs> yeah, what, I, mean, I, I I think I mentioned in the email yesterday uh, that I, there's the yeah, there's this one spot with some boulders and. Uh, but there's lots of boulders all over these hillsides, and I have scrambled all over. I've tried to, I've gone up to like, not necessarily like the source material because these boulders probably fell tens of thousands of years ago. But you know, and and no, no, nowhere else, like within kind of like a square mile radius. And I'm like, why this set? I don't know. So there's yeah, <laughs> and you're you're missing the one piece of information that if it was given to you, you would go, oh yeah. <laughs> But that's not it. It's not available. There's a piece yeah. of cultural information that the there's the ge geographic information of what's the view, where's the water, but then what pilgrimage came through here, or what 
you know, what happened here that people did. And those sites that you're showing me are, are thousands of years old, archaic. And, you know, what was going on back then? Yeah. Um, I mean, the you know, we have a lot of Fremont archaeology here in the valley as well. Um, but they were a couple thousand years after this stuff was, so they maybe yeah. were asking the same, you know, some of the same things. Yeah, these time frames are great. That that were that it's just like oh, a thousand years here, a thousand years there. Yeah, um, you hinted at this a little bit, you know, as you mentioned the the Hopi, uh, um, person that you were speaking with about that pilgrimage site or the site along a pilgrimage route. Um, but I was really struck that you do, you include a lot of commentary from indigenous peoples, um, that you've interacted with over the years, um. Can you think of other examples? And I mean, I think it's obvious why it was important for you to include indigenous voices and perspectives, right? Uh, on, on especially if you're thinking about meaning, right? Yeah. Um, do you have any other examples of where? Uh, well, I mean, the other thing that's striking it that comes up throughout your book as well is that there's not always broad agreement. Different indigenous groups, even uh, different clans within you know, some of these, you know, modern tribal entities don't agree on what it means, why it's powerful, uh, why it is where it is, and, and so forth. Um, yeah. uh, so so what, what do you, what have you, what are some of the things that you think you've gotten, or how it's changed your perspective by being in, in communication or having a relationship with Indigenous peoples today? Oh, how, does that, how does that, how does that change kind of how you, you approach or view these places? Yeah, it, it's going back and talking to the people who are directly connected to it is such a different experience than how I see it because you know, I, I look at rock art and, and I see mystery and I see the unknown, um, you know, very enchanting in that way. But then I talk to somebody from Zuni who, who doesn't, you know, who sees the mystery but that's not the first thing that comes to mind. The first thing that comes to mind is is identity, is, oh, that's me. That's my family. That's my history, which is not what I experience. I, I experience the bigger, um, my history as far as human history, planetary history, but it doesn't have that kind of specificity. And and so that that really changes the way I see it, even though I'm still... You know, it's still mystery and enchanting for me, but I also know, oh, this is a, this is, I'm looking at somebody's photo book, you know, family, family history here. And I, and this isn't my family, but I can appreciate because I have a family, you know, because I, because I come from my people, I can, I can look at this and say, oh, that these, these are as specific um, to somebody else as, as my own family photo book would be to me. And so that, that changes how I see it. It, it, and like I said, the mystery doesn't go away because like I said, I find a, a grocery list on the sidewalk serious. Um, but it, it kind of doubles the impact for me to see that oh this belongs to people who are actually still alive. Um, these are these are clans and societies that that still exist or 
or at least are connected by bloodlines and languages and and cultural traits. And they're part so of community memory still. Yeah, in ways, it's not yeah. floating out there, disconnected from the world. You know, I, and and there is this this um, excitement of lost civilizations, <laughs> but it's just not real. Um, at least in this case, it's not real. And what is real is is much more powerful. That that these haven't ended. These these may be mysterious to me, but to some people, like the the uh, Hopi person I was with, uh, looking at all those thousands of petroglyphs, he was pointing out many, just going, "Oh, I know that one, and that one, and that one. These are these clans, and the, you can see the relationship between this clan and that clan where it is on the panel." And I realized, oh, the things that I look at and just go, "Wow, that's just a bunch of beautiful nonsense." Is actually that's very organized and mm -hmm. and it's a very specific story. Yeah, I mean, because so that Hopi individual, he, they were, they had a way to read the landscape and read this art, um, in ways that, that you didn't or that I wouldn't. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's and it's like going in with somebody who's a linguist or who can read an old language, and you know, to so what you're seeing is gibberish, and then they go, actually, this is telling the story of such and such, and then, oh my god, that's that's such an amazing experience to have it open up like that. Yeah, I think having the sensitivity is important, and a really a, a profound way to kind of transform how people interact with with these places um, by acknowledging, you know, uh, the continuance of indigenous peoples that these, it's not just, I mean, for so many people, or, you know, if, if you turn on the History Channel, uh, most hours of the day, you know, it's like lost civilizations or ancient aliens, you know, people just jump to the most outlandish, fanciful of explanations to try to uh, ascribe meaning to something they find indecipherable. But if mm -hmm. you pause and or, or learn a little bit about, uh, you know, modern continuing indigenous communities and practices, not that it it doesn't take all the mystery away, as you say. Some of them still find them mysterious and en enchanting. Yeah, yeah. But maybe we're, we'd be less prone to jump to the outlandish. Yeah, the outlandish is fun, daydreamy. Um, you know, I I enjoy it, but I re <laughs> recognize the of it, and and not nearly as powerful. It takes more work to to get in and, and try to understand what actually happened in a place rather than to, to say, Hey, I've got a great idea and I'm going to prove it, you know, through bringing in random, <laughs> random <laughs> thoughts. Uh, it, it takes more work to, to talk to people and piece it together. But then that work pays off because, because then you can kind of back up and go, Oh my gosh, this is so rich with detail. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah, aliens were fun to think about, but this is actually connected to my heart and tells a story that that tells me something about how to live and how to see the world. I mean, but it's clear in some of these panels that the people making it were thinking about otherworldly things. Not all of it is just you know, a bighorn sheep. Um, yeah. You know, there are figures that, I mean, you, you talk about some of the different shapes and you know that they seem to be kind of floating they seem to be you know heaven heavenly figures um so i mean i was going to ask you know what your favorite kind of era or style is and for me i, I really like the the barrier canyon 
uh, stuff um, often because it, it is it because it does not that it seems outlandish, but some of it is very haunting. It, it doesn't look human. It it's not easy to say. Oh, that's a centipede. That's a bighorn sheep. That's a figure with a a, a duck on its head. I, I don't know what these beings are meant to be. Um, do do yeah. you have a certain era or style that that you find most uh, captivating? Same style. <laughs> Canyon. <laughs> yeah, the, the barrier figures are so. Uh, I, I think the the older are more interesting, um, and at least how I see it, as as time goes on through rock art, it becomes more more simplified. And as you get into later Pueblo rock art, although there are some pretty spectacular examples, uh, but a lot of it is more. A lot of the later work seems more here are bighorn sheep, here's a dance. Um, Less uh, abstract, more representational yeah. of something real yeah. and concrete or understandable. In some ways, I wonder if, you know, that's when they were doing a lot of architecture. Um, so more public architecture was happening. So grander scale. And maybe that's where a lot of their, their artistry was going. And, but if you go back, especially to, um, early agriculture to basket maker and then back to archaic uh before that you know going back three four five thousand years and then back to barrier canyon um that stuff is just to me getting down to something deep in the human psyche that is that it's far away from us now it's still there i think i don't think we've lost it but it's just buried in in emails (laughs) and then and buried you know, a thousand years ago in agriculture, in heavy agriculture, and go back before that to where, where you had to talk more to the to the world around you. Um, you, I mean, I look at the basket maker art, which I think basket maker is pretty stunning as well. Uh, the that's that's where agriculture really started to to be developed, and I could see that people were saying, "Oh, we got to." talk to the rain because you know hunter gatherers before them could follow the rain but agriculturalists can't they they've got to stay in in one spot more or less and so they had a had to make a different relationship with with their climate and with with um precipitation and and i see that in, in the rock art but then going back to the old stuff the the barrier canyon archaic you know, that's where I'm just going, okay, what were you guys doing? Oh my gosh, you were seeing something that, that I, I, I've, um, I've looked at, um, uh, artwork, especially it was recorded in the sixties and seventies from, from autistic children. And it, it looks like Barrier Canyon rock art. Some of it is just, just amazing. Uh, huh. and I go, well, what is this? What do you, you guys are connected to something that people were doing on a regular basis 4,000 years ago. What is that? That's that. And I didn't actually write that much about it in this book because I, I was kind of sticking to basket maker and mm-hmm. kind of saving, <laughs> saving that because it's also stuff I look at and I go, I have no idea. I mean, I could tell you all kinds of thoughts and none of them would be correct. <laughs> And, and when I talk to indigenous people, especially scholars or people who have deep cultural ties, uh, 
often they'll go back about a thousand years and go, yeah, this is, I can understand this. And then you talk about 1500 years or, or farther and they go, oh, that's starting to go back into the, into the darker, you know, maybe somebody understands, but I, I don't know what that is. That's, that's farther back into the dark of history. And, and then go back to Barrier Canyon. You know, I, I would be interested in spending time with people from Zuni, from Hopi, looking at, at some of these sites. Yeah. But they may be as lost as I am going, I, yeah. I don't know, could be anything. Well, it sounds like this is an excursion we need to do. So yeah, <laughs> keep, keep, keep me in the loop. Um, I'll bring yeah. the tent. Um, <laughs> um, we're kind of running out of time a little bit. I want to touch briefly on... Uh, I'm curious, this isn't in the book, but I'm curious about your thoughts about um, figuring out preservation and um, trying to balance. Uh, it's it's difficult. You know, this came out a lot of these debates came out in the Bears ears, but continuing uh, ongoing controversy, um, you know, protecting designations as a national monument or other things uh, do can provide resources and funds to help protect um, sensitive sites, but with it also comes more attention and maybe more foot traffic, yeah. which that there's no, I mean, there's no amount of funding available to protect all of these remote sites. So, and, and we see like some national parks, you know, like Capitol Reef or others, they intentionally have chosen sites kind of in the front country, right off the road where they put up signage and some fences kind of sacrificing those sites to the masses. Um, and they have cataloged all of the other backcountry sites, but they don't publicize them, right? So they've kind of triaged a little bit. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Like, what approach should we be taking with these oh. sensitive remote places? Yeah, really good question. Or maybe yeah. there's no answer, because there actually probably is no easy answer, or we would have done Yeah, that. I don't think there's <laughs> an easy answer to it. I think distance always helps. You know, if it's more than a mile away from a trailhead, chances are it's not going to be damaged. It seems to be the people within a, you know, within a mile uh, that, that invites folks who, who don't necessarily know what they're dealing with, or they do know, and they want to damage it. Um, but, you know, the, the sites, for instance, there's a, there's a um, petroglyph national monument outside of Albuquerque. Uh, I've traveled there a lot over the years and I used to just, you know, run around in the boulders and, find rock art everywhere and now it's very very controlled and i went there recently and i was irked by the control but i get it <laughs> um it needs to happen there there's a point where land managers go okay we can't handle this there, there's too much damage and uh and i walked the trail that goes back into a, a shallow canyon and i noticed how well they designed the trail you know to turn at certain points to cause you to pause um they kind of built it up so that you entered and saw certain figures and then you saw more and more and then it gave you a big bang at the end uh you know i, I just looked at the whole trail system and went wow you guys really thought this out nice job uh, kind of built a narrative into yeah they built a walk across the landscape yeah and and i think that's important because you know there are a lot of sites that that you just can't have open anymore to to everybody that that they are going to be destroyed and they're they're too old to to let that happen um 
and and I also think that BLM uh, site steward program um, could be ten times its size. Uh, that that I know I know many site stewards, and they just keep their eye on things. Mm-hmm. You know, they just say, "Oh, a little bit of impact is is happening here. We're starting to see, you know, and the and you know, we know this kind of impact within a year, you'll probably see some damage." Yeah. Um, so how to mitigate that and just just keeping our eye on these places um and you know that's one of the reasons i wrote tracing time was so that people would read it and go oh okay i just thought these were decorations which i get i thought they were decorations too um and and to say no they actually these are to to write on these is is to be you know writing on the u.s constitution or to be writing on a on an ancient Bible or you know, whatever it is, it's some important document. You know, recognize that these are important documents, and your scrawl on this is not wanted. <laughs> right? And you should know that it's not—it's not impressive. The statement you're making is, you know, it'll be repaired, but it'll always be damaged by this, and you're damaging something that's of this age, and and so. I think letting people know what these things are is is helpful. So there there are a lot of different approaches, um, and I'm sure there are many more that I haven't thought of. That people listening to the podcast are probably raising their hands right now, going, "Oh, I got an answer," <laughs> and all those answers need to be heard. Yeah. Well, I hope that your book will give people, you know, help them to approach sites with more respect and reverence, so they're you know not gonna you know deface them or or damage them, but yeah, approach them with, yeah, with reverence, really. Um, yeah. and, I, and I don't mean that in a spiritual sense, but in a sense of respecting your place in uh, you know, thousands of years of history. And how tragic to think that these things that have, I mean, literally weathered <laughs> the weather and yeah. er- erosion and so forth for 5,000 years, uh, the thought of just me traipsing in there and def- I, 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 I can't wrap my head around how one could do that, but I think your book will definitely um, help for those who do read it. Um, yeah, I hope so. Um, do you want to give us any insight into uh, what you're planning next? Any new projects on the horizon that you want to give us a teaser of? Well, the next week I'm going to be <laughs> wandering around uh, looking at, at rock art and, and sites uh, in Southeast Utah. Uh, but on the, bigger scale i'm i'm writing a lot um well i'm always writing a lot uh i'm focused heavily on mountain lions right now and uh uh going out with trackers and mountain lion biologists and and uh that looks like it's it's becoming a book um and i'm also i'm writing about dark skies um and you know focused on great basin utah nevada um yeah just more lenses uh how how we see this landscape we live inside of through through mountain lines through through dark skies and stars um but mostly i'm just i'm looking for ways to get back out so (laughs) putting up gear and heading out today and and gonna go rub around in the in the sand and the rock for a while well you're you're living the dream um playing in beautiful places and then writing about it. Oh, um, thank you. It, it is dreamy at times. 
I I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Um, congrats on this book, the, the, the many others, and uh, and thank you for for uh, you know for sh sharing these things with us. Um, really appreciate yeah. it. Thanks for finding me out here. All right. Well, I hope our paths will cross sometime, Craig. Yeah, around some Barrier Canyon rock art. Sounds like. There we go. There we go. <laughs> All right. I'll take care. You too. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through. Or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critique my way. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website, uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, dot org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers. <laughs>